I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. Hi, how is everybody? Are you guys hanging in there? Going a little stir crazy? (laughs) I know, I know. So I am. I actually dug a weird little herb garden last weekend. I'm affectionately calling it my Blair Witch Project. But if all works out, I will at some point have fresh mint for my mojitos that I'm hacking every Saturday night. I'm sure you're thrilled to hear that. So we all know the professional success does not come easily. You know, we've talked about this, right? During the climb, there are thrilling highs and brutal lows, but all the blood, sweat, and tears we encounter along our journey to the top make reaching that goal so fulfilling, right? So I was researching this week's podcast guest last week because she was booked to appear on the Claim and Countdown, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network, Set Your DVR. (laughs) I'm, I'm always promoting the show. She's the president and CEO of a company called Stericycle. Talk about blood, sweat, and tears. Disposing of it is her business. Stericycle is the $4.7 billion medical waste disposal leader. And as I'm reading up on her background, I stopped dead in my tracks. I picked up the phone, called my podcast producer, Tanya Joseph, and said, okay, we need to get her on my podcast. Why? Because... She had me at UPS truck driver. I'd like to welcome former UPS truck driver and now Stericycle CEO, Cindy Miller. Cindy, and, and there's a big span in between the driver and the CEO. And that's a few that's years. There's a few years. <laughs> but thank you for coming on. Everyone talks to Liz. Thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's it's an honor and a thrill, uh, Liz, to to have uh, to have this opportunity. So thanks much, and I'm looking forward to a fun chat. Well, not everyone gets to talk to Liz on this podcast because our bar is set, Cindy, at a very specific height. Because only those with what I think are fascinating stories of the climb to reach success actually fit our focus. And I love your story. Here you are, the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company, but it all begins in a small town in where Northeast Pennsylvania, right? Exactly. You know, I I grew up in Tamaqua, Pennsylvania, and just saying the word, um, you know, it it has it it screams of you know Indian descent. 
it's a northeast Pennsylvania coal mining town. As a matter of fact, uh, my grandfather was a coal mining, God, God rest his soul. And um, so it was, it was one of those uh, communities that, that kind of fell right out of a Norman Rockwell picture, I think. It was parades and picnics and sports and Friday night lights for local high school football games. And, and it, it just was a, it was a great spot to grow up. And um, so, yeah, so I, I'm often shocked, too, as I started there. And, and we'll talk a little bit uh, about it, you know, my career with UPS and now with Stericycle really took me all around the world, and and um, but I'm I'm still just that small town girl, I think. I love that. You know, um, you don't get to just gloss over Tamaqua, though. Not here. You're a high school kid <laughs> in the '70s in Tamaqua. I mean, what are you doing? You're doing disco dancing in front of your mirror. You're on sports teams, yearbook staff. What are you doing back then? Yeah. Uh, yes. 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 Um, you know, I'm I'm trying to figure out or just learning the fact that that do the hustle is not is not the words to it really aren't tuna hot dog because I sang it that way for the longest time. Uh, you know, tuna, tuna hot dog. And I don't, I don't know why I couldn't hear well in Tamaqua, but just had fun. And it was, um, you know, very much engaged in sports um, and just, just everything else going to the local community pool throughout the summers and hanging with your friends, riding bikes everywhere that you possibly could pretty much um, just, just what we see is depicted in, in those terrific movies that take place in the seventies or early eighties. That's, it, it was just, a, it was a wonderful upbringing. Tell me about your folks. Yeah, my my uh, my father, my father was an entrepreneur, and um, you know, my mom was um, she she ran a she ran a pretty strict house, and um, so it was it was very typical. But but my father had done many things. Um, he was a marine at his core, so I'm the daughter of a marine, and you know, I take that quite seriously, and quite a big patriot and and um, supporter of of our veterans and folks who serve, but. Um, so my, my father, um, ran a, a business and, and he was an entrepreneur. He did, um, land development, um, from houses and then up to, you know, lower income homes and homes for some of the elderly, uh, in the area and, and really did a terrific job for us. And, and, um, I had a great upbringing and then, um, as many things, many businessmen have ups and downs. My father's business, uh, hit a tough time around, uh, the early eighties and um it resulted in his his business going bankrupt and liz you'll remember um chapter 11 laws were a little different back then uh my father was not incorporated so filing bankruptcy meant you know they froze your checking account and your personal savings account immediately uh and i think if i think back to one of the strongest business lessons i ever learned uh it was how quickly and how fleeting um success can be uh, if if you aren't careful and you don't you don't think about every step that that you're taking and um, so so that to me you know worrying um, about the family and and the way things you know what my father had to do to to get the family through it just taught me tremendous lessons and really shaped who I am today and 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 I think what really drove my ambition through most of my career. My dad. Um used to say, because he grew up very, very, very poor, and and we did not. He became a successful surgeon. And my listeners know this. He used to say, I gave you kids every advantage except disadvantage. And there is an advantage to going through very difficult times. It sounds like that's what happened with you. 
Absolutely. Um, it, it's heart wrenching to, you know, to watch your parents um, figure out who really uh, who their friend set really was in comparison to, you know, folks that maybe distanced themselves because they were going through tough times. But I think for me personally, I really I watched I watched how how my parents had to adapt and change and be flexible and do things that that um, they didn't have to do before, uh, certainly not at, at this time in their life. And it taught me an awful lot of lessons. It taught me uh, good things and it taught me things to never do. And it really, it really made me want to, um, um, to buckle down uh, and, and really you know, focus on being self-sufficient uh, and to always be able to um, take care of myself and or my family um, you know, no matter what. So it, it led, it led me to be maybe a little bit more fiscally conservative. Uh, and it really shaped an awful lot of, of, of my leadership and, and, um, you know, how we got through that time and, and how I've continued to lead my life. Well, you managed to, to <laughs> really forge ahead. You attended Penn State, go Nittany Lions. Um, but you gotta, you gotta tell me how you found yourself behind the wheel of a UPS truck. Well, that so so at uh, right out of school, um I'm also one of the kids who uh, this happened when I was in college that my father's um difficulties happened when I was in college and I started at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, but I think I was one of the kids who maybe maybe education might've been wasted on the youth at the time. Some, some kids are very ready for education. And then there's some of us who, you know, the, the schoolwork gets in the way of all the other things you go away to college to do. Uh, and I was one of them and, and, you know, unashamedly, um, you know, I admit it. Uh, I also learned lessons from that, but I worked several different part-time jobs in the Allentown area and finally uh, landed a job with UPS and taking the UPS job really boiled down to math. I remember getting a call one night in October of 1988, and the voice on the other end said, um, "You know, Cindy, we have an opportunity for you with UPS." And I said, "Well, when would it? When would I start?" They said, "Tomorrow." And I said, "How much would I make?" Uh, and the gentleman said, "You'll make about um, ten dollars and ninety-eight cents an hour." And I said, "Well, hold on." And I had a piece of paper and a pencil, and I did quick math comparing what I currently make. Uh, and I, I accepted the job offer that quickly. I said, okay, fine. Tell me where and when. Um, so I hung up the phone with, uh, with UPS and I called my other employer and said, I'm sorry, I'll be leaving. I'm going to take another job. And, and October 17th, 1988, I, I started as a UPS driver. Oh my goodness. And what was that like? So you were already driving for your previous employer. Sure. So you were used to driving these large vehicles. But, you know, listen, in the 80s, were there a lot of female UPS truck drivers? You know, there there weren't a lot. I, I would say that UPS was quite progressive. And I have to, I have to, you know, take my hat off to the fact that, you know, UPS was interested in hard workers. And, you know, male, female, uh, it really didn't matter. And but but unfortunately, there weren't a lot. Um, but but I think for me, uh, what what I really liked was, um, you know, it was it was a day out. It was a day in front of customers. It was a it was it was a challenge. It was a competitive sport. It was me versus all those packages that I felt like they just multiplied in the back of the vehicle. Every time I'd close the bulkhead door and think that I took two or three out of there, I'd open up the bulkhead door and remember, oh my goodness, there's so many still back there to deliver. <laughs> that it was uh, it was a quite a it was it was just a a great 
it was a great full day. Um, you know, a fair day's work for a, a, a full day of, of effort and, uh, and pay. And, and I was just so appreciative of the opportunity. And, you know, then 30 years later, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm at a new career with Stericycle. So it, it was really, it was, it, it took a long time, but in some instances I look back and it was a flash. Well, yeah, I would think so. Life is like that. At times slips through our fingers like mercury, but through those periods where you went from being a driver to actually moving out of the brown delivery suit and into a business suit, how mm -hmm. did that transition happen? Because our listeners may be in the first phase of their life, like you were, sure. and then to make that jump, what did it take and how did it happen? You know, the thing for me, Liz, that I think um, someone had shared with me a long time ago, and they had said, in your life, and when opportunities arise, you should really say yes far more times than you say no. And I remember thinking, boy, I don't know much about being in management. I, I, you know, what do I know how to do any of that? And someone said to me, well, Cindy, you played sports. Um, you're going to be, you're, you're on a team. You're just taking a different position on a team. And, and so I remember saying yes. Uh, and then there were other opportunities where I thought, my goodness, I don't know that I could do this next job that, that someone's providing me the opportunity to do. Um, but I knew that, that, you know, if you just, if you just stick to things and say yes and, and give it your a thousand percent, there's a pretty good chance you'll, you'll be successful. And, and I think saying yes to opportunity far more often than saying no. Um, one person described it this way. Every time you say no, you should imagine that you just imagine the sound of hammering a nail because in theory, you're starting to build the board, build the boards of your ceiling. So every time you say no to an opportunity or every time you turn something down, you're, you just picture yourself hammering and creating your own ceiling. And, and that image just stayed with me. It, st it stays with me today. And I never wanted to, to be the one to, to hammer my own, um, you know, my own stop myself from being able to go as far as I could. And I always felt the word no did that. Well, you said yes a lot. In fact, I want you to rattle off all the countries you worked and lived in <laughs> while working at UPS that you said yes to. Yeah, sure. So with UPS in a 30-year time period, I think I moved 11 times with the company. So just by basic math, it's every couple years. Um, and half of the career or 20, no, not half, 20, 20 years of the career was within the U was, was within the U.S. And then mm -hmm. 10 years uh, were overseas and had a chance to move to Brussels, um, lived in Brussels the first time. Um, but my territory was um, Southern Europe, the Middle East and Africa. So I had an opportunity to spend an awful lot of time in 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 places like Lagos, Nigeria and um, in Dubai. And um, certainly there I enjoyed uh Italy and, and Spain and wow. Portugal and Greece. Uh, then I was there for a few years, then had a chance to take a, another position, a similar position, but I was moved to London. Um, my responsibility at that time was uh, London or, or actually the UK, Ireland and all the Nordic countries. And I was there when UPS um, uh, was the sole logistics provider for uh, the, the London 2012 games, which was just fascinating and so exciting and such a um, a professional uplift, but, but also just culturally, it was really just a great time. And then moved back to Belgium for a, a second time, 
um, just soon thereafter in 2013 and took over as president for all of Europe for UPS and had to move back to Brussels because that's where the headquarters was. So then I had a chance to spend more time in some of the other countries like uh, uh, Germany and, and France and Poland and, and a good bit of the Eastern European countries. So it was it was really a fascinating time in my life. Well, it sounds like you always, I love that imagery of the nail in the ceiling. I thought you were going to do the usual nail in the coffin, but no, the ceiling. No, the ceiling. You, you create your own ceiling. Somebody told told me, don't don't build your own ceiling, Cindy. You know, life is already, you know, there's already obstacles that are out there. Don't don't help it by stopping yourself. And and that's how they put it. And I just I always I live by that. Well, speaking of little and big problems, you know, no climb to the top of a company like UPS or any company is without stumbling blocks. Talk about one you encountered back then and how you scaled it successfully. Sure. I think um, I've had, my goodness, is if, if I can admit and tell you that, that I didn't do that well with education, my first pass around, um, I finally did, the end of that story is I finally did go back to school. Um, I sat in a, in a meeting one time at UPS and somebody was talking about the net present value of something. And I thought, okay, you, you need to go back to school and, and get an education. Later on, the funny part of that is years later, um, I was speaking to some of the older gentlemen who were in that boardroom at the time. And um, after I had finished my degree and they said, they said, you know, Cindy, it was really great that you went and did that uh, before online classes and those type things. You know, I used to have to take a week of vacation and go and, and spend a week in school and then and then uh, send in all my work. And the one guy said and I said, oh, yeah, well, I didn't know what the, the CFO was talking about or the controller was talking about. And, and they all laughed. And they said, Cindy, none of us know what the controller's <laughs> talking about. And I, I thought and they said, oh, yeah, he just rattles off about net present values and, you know, the the, the weighted average of capital. And, I, and he, they said, well, none of us know what that means. And I I had to laugh. Thank goodness I didn't know that at the time. But, but I think for me, some of the obstacles um, that I've had to deal with is uh, I can remember some making some some pretty big mistakes, um, mistakes whereby, you know, I, maybe it was planning uh, the week between Christmas and New Year's and, and I didn't plan correctly. And, um, you know, we ended up with with some some problems and and our, our my area of responsibility didn't do as well as maybe it should have. And and I remember one of the biggest lessons from that was always. Um, you have to come clean and, and accept it uh, and take full responsibility for it. And then just make sure that somewhere in your mind, you just, you, you chalk it up to, okay, I, you learn from great experiences when you win, if you will, but you also learn from all those experiences where, where it doesn't feel good and you, you've fallen and you scraped your knees. And, you know, those, those to me are, are always some of the greater um, life learning moments. And I would have to say that I've had I've had a fair share of both, but I think I think collectively that's what's helped prepare me for my position today at Stericycle, um, because I, I not only remember the euphoric times, but I also remember the times where my knees were pretty busted up because of a fall, uh, and I think I think both of those um, kind of meld into giving me the confidence to be able to to make the decisions and do the things that I need to do today. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services 
Marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. John Chambers of Cisco told me once that uh, he was talking to Jack Welch of General Electric. May he rest in peace. And he said to John Chambers, you know, John, you're a good CEO, but you're not a great CEO yet. And John said to him, what do I need to do? to become a great CEO. And Jack Welch said, go through a near death business experience. Yeah, there you go. And to be that great person. Yeah. I mean, Powerful. arguably many CEOs are going through that right now during exactly. this coronavirus, which brings me to Stericycle. You just took over a CEO last year. What Cindy, beyond the bloody gauze and the used needles entice <laughs> you about this lovely gig. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, it, it boils down to a couple of things. Number one, um, Stericycle, I think, is in an industry where I was I was going to be provided an opportunity to actually be the, the company disruptor. Um, if you think about the waste industry in general, um, college kids aren't waking up today thinking, boy, you know, I'd love to create an app that would just disrupt waste management or stericycle or, you know, it's just, it just isn't what they're thinking about, which means it provided me an opportunity to say, Hey, here's a, here's a phenomenal, you know, lump of clay that is an industry leader in reg regulated waste, the largest. Um, and you know, how can we, how can I take what I've learned, um, and really disrupt what we do and, and take us to new heights? And I think, I think the opportunity to do that, um, I think was, was probably first and foremost. Uh, then the second portion of it, uh, Liz, as you know, in, in, um, ha knowing, uh, about the company is, is a, the, the mantra is we protect what matters. And, and I just love that about the company. I love at this point in time in my career to be able to continue to be with a company that I just love its mission. Uh, if you, if you think about having to protect individuals, and I know the COVID pandemic certainly brings all of this to the forefront, but even down to protecting waterways from pharmaceutical waste and, and, you know, protecting communities and making sure that all the bad stuff that we collect every day, you know, it doesn't end up doing more harm. Um, that to me was just, it was, it's a mission and, and it's a rallying cry for, for the thousands of people that we have at Stericycle. And you get caught up in that very quickly when you join the team. And I can tell you, it's, it's what we live by. And, and to me, all of that's very exciting. And I'm, I'm just, I'm thrilled, honored and humbled to be, to be part of such a terrific, uh, 
terrific company. We're living in a historic time right now, though, and you're leading this medical waste disposal company in the midst of the worst pandemic most of us have ever seen. You know, Stericycle dealt with many natural disasters sure. and outbreaks in the past, or, you know, Hurricane Katrina, Ebola, H1N1. Sure. How, how has Stericycle's response to COVID-19 differed, if at all, from past responses? Sure. That's, um, gosh, what a great question. Um you you like to think the last thing that it, that you went through was the most difficult was actually the most difficult and then you know before you know it there's the next one and this one is different i think in the the world the way the globe handled it um and the way the way the world really shut down and even in its in its recovery the way you know not even every state is is doing the same thing and and i think it's that um that that part of it that's so dynamic and changing that I think makes it different than than any of the things that Stericycle has had to face before, and it's it's reminded me um, one of my well my favorite uh, business book uh, is and I'm I'm I don't have it in front of me but it's it's the the Ten Commandments of of um, business failures and I remember the gentleman uh, Mr mm. Keogh Don Keogh, Don Keogh um, yeah. wrote yeah he wrote the book and and Warren Buffett I think did the forward to it and and if I'm not if I'm not mistaken I think a couple of the uh, a couple of the chapters that that talked about, you know, if you want to fail, be inflexible. And if you, if you want to fail, isolate yourself. If you want to fail, um, I remember my favorite chapter was if you want to fail, put all your faith in, in, in all the so-called experts and outside consultants. And the list just went on and on. And I think there was, there's one in there about if you want to fail, send a, send mixed messages. And if you want to make sure you fail, be, afra- be a- afraid of tomorrow or be, be afraid to, to take risks. Wow. And, and when, I, when I think about that book and I think about today um, and how to lead through these times, um, I, I, I think it's, a, it's almost a roadmap that says, hey, now more than ever, you need to be flexible. Now more than ever, you need to paint a vision for the future. Now more than ever, you, you can't send mixed messages and you need to communicate your strategy, you know, pretty clearly to everybody and let it cascade to the front line. Um, it's it now more than ever, you can't be isolated. You know, you really need to um, think things through with your peers and your team and and um, be able to to be more nimble. So so for me, I think these times are more uh, it's it's a it's it's all things at once to make you think about the Ten Commandments of business failure, and I, I I like to I laughed at his book. It's actually eleven commandments, even though he calls it ten. Um, but I love that about the book, and and it sits in my office. And for me, there isn't anything that I haven't faced from a challenge perspective with business, and certainly at Stericycle, where. I couldn't look to one of the chapters in that book and say, okay, yes, I find myself being inflexible and that's, that's not going to get us through this. And so it's been extremely helpful, but, um, you know, to get through these, these, um, historic times. Indeed. You, you talked about keeping the water system and the, the sure. waste system safe from this. And you guys dispose safely of, billions of pounds of plastics yes. and medical waste, et cetera, yes. in, in such an amazing way. I mean, I know this company, I've covered it for 20 years. Uh, one of the first things that I remembered reading was that coronavirus was found in wastewater, you know, from 
I know you're not a doctor. I know you're not an epidemiologist, but this is your business. Uh, what are you hearing about that? We've got a lot of listeners who are don't even know how to wrap their mind around that. Is that something yeah. that, uh, you know, how concerned should we be? The CDC has been very clear. It's not in drinking water, but it's in wastewater. I don't even know what that means, but what does it mean to somebody like you who runs the world's largest, you know, the nation's largest waste disposal, medical waste disposal company? Sure. Uh, that's that's a great question. And the interesting thing is that, you know, we continue to read um, and, and, and just pour over our engagements with the CDC, you know, as they talk to us and consult with us. And quite frankly, many of the other uh, health organizations around the world, just to make sure that that we're looking at packaging and, and processing and and uh, taking care of waste appropriately, but but I think from from our perspective, I think one of the things that I do have faith in, um, you know, I I think is coronavirus. Is it in wastewater? Is it? I I think I, I read an article today about the fact that you know some parts of of um, antibodies from from potentially. Um, some of the older diseases are now going to help us moving forward and they're, they're doing all types of research on it. And, and I do know it, it's stericycle. The one thing that, that I think we do that I, that I know should help people, um, kind of rest a little bit better is the attention to detail in terms of, um, the safety and the compliance and the adherence to regulation. And most of that regulation, as you know, Liz, is really based on science. Uh, and I think, there's a part of me that that while I can't quote all the the scientific formulas uh, that we perform, I do know as we collect the waste and not just coronavirus but all of it that's that's harmful to everybody um, as we collect it, there's such an adherence in our DNA of wanting to follow to follow process to the letter of the law and even beyond, uh, because we do take that we protect what matters so seriously. It really is the core of who we are. So whether it's coronavirus today and, and whatever the next unfortunate named thing might be 10 years from now, uh, five minutes from now, you know, companies like Stericycle, we stand at the ready, um, you know, to help do the right thing um, so that society can move on. Stericycle, for people who don't know, you guys grind down needles. Everything. How do you do what you do? I mean, how do you make sure that PPE that's dirtied with perhaps the blood of somebody who's had coronavirus or Ebola, how do you make sure that that doesn't continue to exist? You know, I think a couple of things. Um, we've got a, we've got a, a, a vast infrastructure and a network. Um, many autoclaves, autoclaving facilities and incinerators. And I think the first thing you have to have is you've got to make sure that you, you, you are giving your waste to a provider that has the capacity and the capability. Cause, cause if it's in a bag as it's collected, it's, it's just in a bag. It's no, it's no different than, you know, than, than anything else that's in a bag. It could get out of a bag. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the way that it has to be handled. You have to have capacity. You have to have an infrastructure. You have to have the processes so that it isn't sitting idle, that it's constantly handled. Um, whether it's autoclaved and very quickly, that's just a very large industrial cylinder that we put the waste in and based on pressure and heat and, and, and many other things, everything that's potentially infectious or diseased in, in that it, it gets killed. And when it comes out the other side, it's, it's, it's rendered safe, 
um, you know, to be disposed of, or we incinerate things. Um, and you, and we all know what, you know, what that does. So there's, there's, um, I think it's it's a combination of all things. I have I understand our capacity. We check it every day from an operations perspective. We do regular maintenance maintenance and we stay ahead of the maintenance game in terms of keeping equipment and keeping everything up and running and ready to be able to handle the next minute, the next hour's worth of work. Uh, and, and there's a, there's an audit system, an internal audit system that makes sure that we're, we're compliant with that. Uh, and I think that, you know, as you, as you plan your work, you work your plan. And, and I would say that it, at Stericycle, I have, um, just a tremendous amount of confidence in our frontline workers who are, who are actually out there every day, helping to, helping to support the healthcare network and system. And then for, for all the, the folks that are out there also, running our plants and, you know, keeping track of all of the, uh, the record keeping and all the things that they need to do. I'm, it, it's, um, Stericycle was a great company before I got there and I'm thrilled to be there and just looking forward to continuing to, um, uh, to make it that much greater. Well, for those of us who actually care about the environment, I would say this, you know, 60 Minutes did this piece on Sunday night and the writer the reporter, the way he said it really hit me hard because I'm a big tree hugger from California. <laughs> and he said that already during the Australian massive fires, quote, Mother Nature was beginning to clear her throat. Mm-hmm. And then we got hit with this pandemic. Now, Stericycle diverts millions of pounds of plastic from landfills. Mm-hmm. That, that helps our oceans and waterways stay cleaner, at least. But over the course of this pandemic, it's almost like Mother Nature has sent out this massive warning. And because of this horrific lockdown that's really hurt a lot of people economically, still we now see cleaner water, less polluted skies, they did this amazing thing on 16 Minutes where they had this this huge arch in somewhere in India where people under the best of circumstances can't even breathe because there's so much pollution. Right. And then they dissolved to a picture of it now. And the air was clear and the sky was blue. I just need to know your thoughts about this, this sense of, you know, caring about this planet. And Stericycle's role in that. Sure. Because that sure. matters to a lot of our listeners. You know, it, it's it's extremely important. Um, for me, I'm the, the I'm currently reading a book right now by Joshua McNall. It's um, a personal book. It's it's called Long Story Short, and it's it's really a you know it's just a, a study of a quick study of the Bible, if you will. And and for me, I I appreciate I appreciate God's green earth every minute of every day. Uh, there isn't a day that I walk outside that I don't think, wow, you know, I love the blues of the sky and, and, and the clouds. So, so like you, I, I have a great appreciation for, for wanting to preserve this for my grandchildren. Um, you know, I walk them around outside or I swim in a lake with them and, and I, and I'm, so I'm, I'm with you. I might not be from California, but I certainly do value, <laughs> you know, that w- w- which we have. Uh, and I, and I think that, um, Stericycle in terms of, 
you know, with our pharmaceutical take back programs that, you know, one of the biggest contributors to 80% of the waterways having trace of pharmaceutical is because people think they're doing the right thing. You know, you, you go in and you may have had a, an elderly person who's now recovered and you have all the, you have a medicine cabinet filled with old drugs and you don't want your children to get them. You don't want the dog to get them. So, so what do many of us do? Um, you take the lids off of them and you dump them down the toilet because you think, well, that's where waste goes. So it's probably okay. Uh, and it's, it's those types of things, I think, simple things. Because what makes a difference in the world is when a lot of people take the care and the time to do simple things. And if we all did them, you know, it, 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 just based on math, things would get better. So, um, so Stericycle, I think it has an awful lot of products like our pharmaceutical mailback programs and several other things where we're really working towards protecting the environment. But then also, as you know, Liz, with, um, I, I think you guys have done many, many different studies on the opioid crisis and, you know, all the sure. destruction that happens, uh, to people and to, to, um, families uh, around that. Um, you know, the pharmaceutical take back programs are also, you know, meant to help, uh, help people, not just the environment. So I'm very proud of the work that we do with our, with our mailbacks and our, our kiosks for pharmaceutical drop-off um, that I think are very important. And the more that we could get people using them, you know, I think uh, as, as we've seen, you know, if enough people stop doing bad things, good things happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I want to end with this because you are a relatively new CEO at Stericycle. You love your employees. Well, tell me how you work to get the best out of your employees, because I'll tell you, you know, I've worked for a lot of different people and he, listen, he's controversial. Uh, he's gone now, but Roger Ailes, who hired me, oh, at Fox, yeah. very controversial guy. But I remember him saying in my interview, he said, I, you know, I, I know those guys at CNBC where you work from and I, I know all the other leaders, but you know, I just, I love my talent, meaning I, I, I care about them. I, I don't, I don't resent them. And you know, a lot of leaders kind of resent their employees. Who knows why? But mm -hmm. tell me if I were one of your employees whom you didn't know, somebody on the lower rung, what would you say to them about how you view their opportunity to move up just as you did at UPS? You know, Liz, I think that's something that drives me every day. Um, it reminds me of three things that, that just I really focus on. Um, one of them is communication because I don't think, I don't think you can ever over communicate. Um, I think being able to relate one on one to someone on the front line and then be able to have a conversation with an investor the next day is extremely important. Mm -hmm. Uh, so communication, I think being authentic, um, people can sniff through someone that's not themselves. It, it, easily. It's, it's, it's almost laughable um, when someone tries to be something that they're not. And, and I think people need to learn to be themselves. That's the authenticity part. And then the, the last piece I think is really um, just, just being honest uh, and very transparent. And I think I live those three things every day. Um, I'm not anybody different behind a, you know, a boardroom door than I am when I'm, when I'm outside. I, 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 I like to have fun. I say some dumb things. Uh, I own up to my mistakes. And I think those are the things that people find relatable. And for me, if I, if I had a frontline person sitting with me right now that I never met, and let's say they're from your hometown in California, um, first I'd have to say that, that I'm in awe every day of what they do. 
because having been a frontline person with a different company, but with UPS, um, I understand the importance of, of, of what that person's job is every day and what a difference they make in everybody's life. And I would have to thank them for that. Uh, then I, more than likely I would, I would, um, you know, answer any question that they would have. And, and, and quite frankly, I'd, um, I'd be the kind of person who I'd want to, I'd want to go out on the route with them. I'd want to help them. And then afterwards I'd be the person to, um, you know, to treat them to, to a, to a beverage at a local place. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm still that small town kind of girl and my life is much bigger than, than the title on a business card. And I, and I think that people can see, they can tell people who that's what their life is all about. And then they can tell folks who are, who, who have more than that going on. And I'd like to think that, that that's who I am. A beverage. Okay. What's your beverage? I mean, uh, beverage. Uh, well, you know, I having, I, I moved to Europe, a confession, Moved to Europe and I couldn't drink wine. Uh, it would give me a headache. I could sniff a label and I could get a headache. And I and I wasn't much of a beer drinker. The sin the sin of of my international experience is I've come back. Well, let's I mean let's face it. I lived for over five years in a country that that had at one point in time over seven hundred and forty three breweries. And I only think that the whole the whole country is probably the size of New England. Um, so I've I've developed a phenomenal taste for stout beers. I absolutely ah. love a good stout beer. And, um, for wines, um, I, I can say that I came back with far too many bottles of wine. Um, but I have, it, it has helped through the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I don't drink really at all, but I can stomach a mojito, but with just oh, a there you go. Room. There yeah, you see, go. I told you, I outed myself at the beginning by go. saying that I'm going to have mint for my mojito in the backyard. <laughs> um, Great to talk to you, Cindy. It's a very inspiring story. And I really, I wanted this. I wanted you to come on and open yourself up. And because what a, what a success story you have. But I think it's very important for people to understand that they see a, a CEO making a lot of money and at the pinnacle, they need to know what came before it. And you've done that for us. So thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It's an honor. Thank you so much, Liz. I, I greatly appreciate it. Anytime, anytime. Cindy is the CEO of Stericycle. You guys, listen, she was on my show in living color. Had you watched Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Fox Business Network, you will see so many great leaders. But always come back to Everyone Talks to Liz for that very unique, and as I said, a certain height of a bar that we must scale each time. And that's the story of success and how people got there. So thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.